Hello, and welcome to This Human Business. This podcast covers the growing movement among business professionals to bring rich humanity back to a respected place in commercial culture. At least that is what the podcast has been. But what will it become? What the future holds is a conundrum. It fascinates us more than anything else, but it always lays out of reach. That conundrum, the future of business, is the subject of this week's episode. As last week's episode of this podcast amply demonstrated, the stories people in business are now telling about the future center around the development of digital technology. Our anxiety about the future grows as the pace of social change is accelerated by technology. Disruption of the sort sown by Silicon Valley entrepreneurs can bring economic opportunity for those who are on the right side of it, but it also makes people feel just plain awful. Besides, how can we be sure that we will come down on the right side of the disruption? Jamie Stetton of the House of Beautiful Business talked to me about these kind of concerns, but also about her hopes for a future in which we are able to avoid the technological dystopias of science fiction. There is an intersection between technology and humanity, and I think there's a sort of mutual uh, mutual need situation. I mean, technology needs humanity in order to, you know, continue being developed and to have a purpose in the world, and humanity needs technology to be able to deal with life and society and we're talking about you know everything from from medicine and and that kind of technology to our day-to-day uses of technology phones computers internet all of all of that and you can you kind of can't discuss one without the other at this point and i i hope and think that in all advances of technology that humanity comes into play in all those conversations and that people are thinking about the future of humanity when they're thinking about the future of technology. Otherwise, we will end up in some kind of horrible dystopian black mirror society that I don't think I'd want to be a part of. Will the future be a black mirror dystopia or a digital utopia? Your response to that question depends less on your ability to predict the future than on your experience in the present. The future is what anthropologist Grant McCracken calls a zone of displaced meaning. It doesn't really exist yet, but we imagine it as a place that's real and already decided, a place into which we can put ideas that we are incapable of confronting in the present moment. McCracken's point is that we create visions of distant realms such as the future in order to reconcile ourselves with discrepancies between our cultural beliefs about how things ought to be and how things actually are in the present moment. Commerce runs on the fuel of displaced meaning. In the business world, you hear a lot of people talking as if they know exactly what the future holds for us. The future of work is a favorite topic, although all of the work we do remains firmly in the present. 
one forecast that has been repeated quite often this year. It was provided by Annette Zimmerman, vice president of research at Gartner, an advisory firm. She announced, by 2022, your personal device will know more about your emotional state than your own family. Well, that sounds like a statistic worth paying attention to, doesn't it? It's certainly specific. By 2022, Zimmerman says, your mobile phone will know more about the state of your emotions than your own family does. Not by 2023, not even by April of 2022, but certainly before January of that year. That is the date when your iPhone will have greater knowledge of your emotional feelings than your mother does, than your husband does, than your children do. Pause and think for a moment, and you'll realize that there's no way on earth that Annette Zimmerman can possibly know any such thing. Gartner has absolutely zero research methods capable of determining this specific fact. For one thing, there is no standard, reliable, well-established, quantitative way to measure what a person's emotional state of mind is. We don't have a way to provide a reliable measurement of family members' perceptions of each other's emotions either. We can form measurements of what they say they know about each other's emotions, but that's not at all the same thing as measuring what family members actually know about each other's feelings. Lacking such a measurement, how could anyone at Gartner accurately assess the relative emotional knowledge of a smartphone and the family member who uses it? A more serious problem with Annette Zimmerman's assertion is that machines don't know anything. They hold information without knowing that they hold it. An iPhone no more knows anything about its owner than a chair knows about the person who sits in it. The most serious flaw of all in Gartner's extravagantly bold assertion is this. No one from Gartner, not Annette Zimmerman, nor any of her employees, has ever been to the future. They haven't researched the future. Zimmerman doesn't really know anything about what will happen by the year 2022. She's just saying that she does. Now, a wiser approach to the future was given by Carol Golta, the CEO of Indeed Innovation, when he said to me, you can't predict the future. You can only envision it. What the real result will be when the future becomes present, that's a mystery. If you're a futurist, you're really a mythologist, a storyteller. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, as this podcast's episode on storytelling in business asserted, it's an essential service. Let's just be clear about this. Futurists don't study the future. They study stories that people tell about the future, and they craft new stories about the future to suit their purposes in the present. So if you're listening to this podcast looking for a certain forecast of business conditions in the future, you're out of luck. All certainty about the future is an illusion. What you will hear is a number of stories about the future of business, and these stories are excellent tools for understanding the culture of business in the here and now. 
Designer Scott Dawson sees a future in which the contrast of digital technology will enable us to perceive the complex qualities of humanity more clearly. Well, I think anything that a person touches, they inform it with their personality. So if we were given a task for which you thought there was really only one potential outcome, you can get very different things. If you give 100 people a very simple task, you're going to find a massive variety in how they approach it, how they think about it, and ultimately what it turns out to be. Yeah, computers are really good at permuting all of that. They're really good about decisioning, like, what's the best, you know? Uh, thinking about like computers that play chess, but that's a that's a really tightly constrained universe, you know, a chessboard. The problems we're trying to solve are huge, and you think about all the uh, all the potential outcomes of chess. You know, multiply that out by you know many many ends. It's just you're not going to be able to eliminate the humanity in these things. I think if you do, and people accept that. There's a certain complacency that like, oh yeah, the machines are, you know, are taking things over. And yeah, it's not awesome, but it's, it's okay. I don't have to work as much. I don't see that complacency happening because I think, I think our, our human need to put something into the world and take ownership of it means that complacency won't exist. There will always be artists. There will always be people who want to influence, to change, to challenge, to put their stamp on the world. Scott doesn't accept the dystopian vision of a future in which artificial intelligence displaces humanity. He perceives self-actualization as the center of the human experience. So contrary to business models that suppose people will always choose the most convenient option, Scott chooses to believe in the strength of the creative impulse of humanity. What he's really saying, I think, is that business is something more than an exercise in engineering. He believes that business is a form of art. Julia von Winterfeld shares Scott's optimism for the future of business. She disagrees with the conventional business story about the future, in which automation, quantification, and efficiency continue to expand, making human beings obsolete. Instead, Julia foresees a future in which human compassion becomes the most important professional skill of all. As humans, we self-regulate ourselves, meaning that I, I do see that the future is going to be a place where we embrace more the, the communal and the, the caring for each other because all this technology is going to serve us um, in a sense of doing things for us and hence giving us time to share and be together to think maybe of new opportunities, new possibilities, new, um, new frontiers. And where that doesn't happen, um, I think these companies will, you know, will have a certain length of opportunity, but I do actually think that they won't survive this um, in the long run. What if Julia is right? What if the skills that will enable success in the marketplace of the future won't be coding and scaling, but collaboration and the ability to form human-to-human -human connections. 
if Julia's story about the future is right, the implications for our present business agendas is clear. Instead of placing a wireless chip in every object we can get our hands on to build a ubiquitous internet of things, businesses need to develop new methods to build empathy in order to foster a community of human beings. Now, you've heard this before, perhaps. Empathy is kind of a catchphrase in design circles. But more often than not, what is framed as empathy ends up just being another exercise in gathering piles of quantitative data, which is used to build superficial personas of what a business would like to think about what motivates people. That's not true empathy. Empathy requires emotional connection, and that takes place between human beings. It's beyond calculation. If we're going to build an authentic movement for human business, we have to go beyond the catchphrases. To integrate an ethic of thick qualitative connection into the core of business culture. That's the kind of future that Bhavik Joshi, strategic director at LPK, is working to build. From a commercial aspect, I think brands, if they truly are a catalyst, if they truly are those challenges and seductions and magical powers along the quest, then they have to be cognizant of the power that they provide in context of the changing nature of the quest, right? And I feel like right now, if this is what is happening, then how are brands a part of it? How are brands participating in it? And what are the brands doing when they choose to say, hey, we're just, you know, we're just a widget maker and we just make widgets. We don't want anything to do with this. So even though they feel like they don't have a responsibility or they don't want to participate in it, I don't feel like there's, I don't think there's a fence that people can sit on anymore. You know, it's, I don't think, I think inaction itself is inexcusable. And and I feel like um, one of the things that excites me a lot is to kind of, First, understand the changing landscape, understand the forces underneath it that are causing these tectonic shifts in the sociocultural plates, but then also try and respond to it, try and try and respond. And by response, I don't mean from a place of authority saying, yes, this is what a person should do and this is what brands should do, but even to kind of insert yourself in the conversation, even for brands to have the courage to say that, hey, we might not be in front of a cause, we might not be standing ahead of it, championing it, but we're definitely behind it, we definitely understand it, we definitely support it, and at least to have some kind of a dialogue. And, and I hope what I'm saying doesn't sound like like a separate CSR initiative that brands should do. I'm not talking about brands that should have a fund on the side to plant trees, save the polar bears, and invest in education or dig wells uh, somewhere. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is in their day-to-day expression and manifestation and narratives and storytelling and the visuals that they use to communicate the essence and the equity of their brand, they should start infusing these changes that are happening in the climate around us. Um, and, and I think I think that's something that excites me. I'm hopeful that more and more brands, and at least more and more of the brands that I get to work with, 
get to do that and we can give them the courage to do that more and more, that's what I'm looking forward to. Bhavik Joshi is on a quest, moving through a marketplace set upon a landscape changed by tectonic shifts. What he's seeking are enduring storylines that can keep consumers and companies on course regardless of the changes taking place around them. In the future envisioned by Bavik, businesses will shift away from simply making widgets and selling them through systems of efficient management. Instead, he suggests the main dimension of differentiation in the marketplace of the future will be meaning, and not just as a sweet but thin glaze on top of an otherwise coarse foundation of directionless automation. He foresees a new way of doing business that begins with a narrative that infuses every part of the company it inspires. In his story about the future, it seems to me that Bavik is trying to tell us that we're wrong when we conclude that the present dynamics of rapid digital expansion is the end of business history. Bavik is reminding us that businesses are tools for accomplishing change that goes beyond the economic imperative of the moment. Nonetheless, as the core cultural meaning of a business moves forward over time, we should expect the unexpected. There's a huge amount at stake in this story about the future. It wouldn't matter if the stakes were low. And maybe that's the crucial message Bavik's story about the future seeks to tell us about the present. What we do now, the choices we make today about how to run our businesses will have profound impacts. We can't just wait for technology to save us. We have to make the most important decisions now. This message also came out in my conversation with Jonah Sachs, author of the books Winning the Story Wars and Unsafe Thinking. I think that we face tremendous and seemingly unsolvable problems as a, as a species when you, you know, look to what scientists are saying about resource depletion, population, uh, climate change. It, with our old progress, way of progressing, there's really sort of no way out. And so these stories about what technology might do with and for us, I think are necessary to engage in because we do need some sort of phase change as a, as a species um, in our behavior in our ability to transform the planet, in our ability to uh, live with each other um, more, more effectively. So, you know, I think in a way, it's like without the growth of technology, I feel like we don't have a, a huge amount of hope over the next hundred years to, to continue as a civilization. So in some ways, we all do need to engage with and welcome in to some degree a, a partnership with technology that are beyond our imagination to help solve our biggest problems. And, and I, I hope that those technologies will continue and to be developed by people. Um, I think a lot of people in the technology space do care about these things and think about these things and that that will remain and, and even sharpen as a focus of what these technologies are for um, and become a filter of, you know, reaching high, humanity's highest aspirations 
rather than just kind of increasing inequality and greed and uh, the, the depletion of our, our planetary resources. So, you know, look, we have to, we, we, we can't think linearly anymore. And I think that's one of the big messages of the singularity is like, how do you, how do you think asymptotically? How do you think exponentially? Um, and so if we want to see the future, we need to understand that things are going to change exponentially. We can't predict it, but we can like sort of be in that conversation. At the same time, you know, I've been moved by stories that, that human beings will not be the most intelligent species on the planet for much longer. And um, once that happens, the, you know, all bets are off and who knows, you know, how, how we can possibly share the planet with a more intelligent species that's never been done before. And the most intelligent species always sort of dominates the ones below them. I think that's credible too. And so beyond just human intention, how uh, artificial intelligence manifests itself and uh, whether or not we can control it is, you know, is fascinating and frightening. And, you know, maybe it even goes beyond like what the intention of the people behind it is, uh, whether or not we can coexist with it. Jonah presents us with an unsettling combination of ideas about the future. First, that we need to make some desperate choices right now, or it won't just be our businesses that fail. Civilization itself is at stake, he says. Second, we can't think linearly, and that means that the intentions of business leaders are unlikely to match the outcomes of their actions. Everything that we care about is on the line, Jonah tells us, but we can't know what the impact of our decisions will be. I guess I would say that the future of work, certainly, and automation is really unknown, and um, I've always felt like now more than ever is a time to to really be thinking about our values between human beings because two things can happen i think when, when work gets automated you know one there can be uh, a lot more broad prosperity as people have to work less in factories and can free themselves to do other things that are more actually more human i, I worry sometimes that we celebrate and try to look backwards on very inhuman inhuman work patterns, like sitting in a factory stamping out parts. Um, we don't need to go back to that necessarily if machines can do it. But the question is, you know, will all those people who used to do that just be thrown out on the street or, and, and, you know, more wealth concentrated in the people who own the machines, or will this liberate sort of human minds to do new and better things? Jonah can't settle on just one vision of the future because his vision of the present condition of business culture is divided between two different models. First, there's the idealism expressed by Silicon Valley executives who cast their work as part of an historic move to liberate people from repetitive physical labor. Second, there's the clear economic trend showing that as the biggest digital technology companies gain more power, the rest of us are losing it with falling wages, shrinking benefits, and longer working hours under tighter demands. This divided vision reveals something essential about the future. It isn't just one thing. There isn't just one story of the future of business that applies to everyone. In business culture, tales of the future tend to be bright, while in popular culture, the future is dystopian. Martin Reeves, director of the Henderson Institute at the Boston Consulting Group, focuses on guiding business leaders in navigating this divided future. He urges us to think strategically, guided by the eternal questions of philosophy, in order to draft plans that have a reasonable chance of remaining relevant in the uncertainty of what is to come. 
One sort of meta conclusion is that we can't really understand what will happen to technology and what the consequences of that will be for us unless we actually re-examine some age-old philosophical questions about, you know, who are we? Where are we going? How do we get there? And they sound like soft questions, but but really you get there, right? I mean, if we if we use AI in ways that put people out of jobs, then there'll be a then there'll be a backlash. And if there's a backlash, we may inhibit the potential of the technology. So I think technology many technology companies are fully there in terms of this being a very real set of issues. Equally to to fully exploit you know AI beyond you know beyond trivial applications, we really need to think very hard about how can technology and humans interact. The, the technology has to, be, has to be human and to be embraced by humans it needs to make us better humans. So the particular exercise that we contributed to the conference was not to frame this as a passive forecasting exercise, what will happen to us, but to, to frame it as, as an exercise in imagination where we say through the lens of, of film and literature what are the plausible futures of technology and humanity and which ones do we like and what are the consequences for corporations and employees and leaders and humans and if that's a scenario that we want how do we how do we get there using literature and philosophy to plan for the future sounds unscientific the fact is though that business information systems aren't as complete as they seem. What's more, the connection of hard data to executive decision-making is rather soft. The majority of executives still don't trust their own company's analytics to guide their businesses into the future. They have good reason to be concerned. The quality of business data remains unreliable on the whole, and predictive models are limited in their power. More importantly, when predictive algorithms supplant the decision-making authority of human beings, they undermine one of the most important factors in business success, human engagement. Even if artificial intelligence could make reliably successful strategic decisions in complex situations, those decisions would be made in a black box, outside of the comprehension of human beings. When people are set to work on tasks without understanding why those tasks are important, their engagement plummets and productivity suffers. To feel confident in their work, human beings need a story about where they're coming from, where they are now, and where they're going. Analytics doesn't supply that. Literature and philosophy do. Of course, the questions of literature and philosophy are age-old because they are, to some extent, unanswerable. Tim Lebrecht, author of The Business Romantic and co-founder of The House of Beautiful Business, is willing to sit with these questions without rushing to find their answers. Frankly, like the more I talk about these issues and the more people I meet and the more I read and the deeper I, I dive into these, these issues, the less I know. And I think right now, and maybe that's just 
also in, in a way, you know, sort of the soil of the house or that the house is built on is that we, we don't give answers. We just want to make sure that people have the courage to ask questions. We're really in this transitionary moment right now between two two narratives or two systems, two worlds. Uh, and maybe there isn't a singular new coherent narrative emerging. But I think right now we're just in such flux and such painful transition. And it's an exciting time. It's a, it's a really frightening time. Um, and it's very, very humbling, I, I believe, because uh, I think every day we're just all overwhelmed by the complexity of not just our work, but also all the questions that we're dealing with, the, the, the small questions and the big questions. And I think maybe that humility is also something that, that actually maybe it's, it's a it's a virtue per se, and it's, if anything, is, is something that the House of Beautiful Business can, can cultivate, and maybe that will lead to something more concrete. Most people reimagine the present by describing the future, but Tim reframes the future by describing what we're going through right now. And the biggest theme with that is uncertainty. When he describes the present as a time of transition, what he's telling us about the future is that we must not imagine it as merely an extrapolation of what's happening right now. Tim is suggesting that the future of business won't be dominated by Google or Facebook or Amazon or companies that are anything like them. As a time of painful transition, the digital upheaval we're going through right now can seem like a kind of improvised rite of passage. That means that what we're experiencing right now isn't really a taste of things to come so much as an aperitif, preparing us with its own unique qualities for the future. So though a surge into digital is the trend right now, it will likely be supplanted by something quite different in the future. Moving fast may be replaced with a new appreciation of slow. The large corporation may be overcome by the small. When I met restaurant owner Teresa Fidel at the House of Beautiful Business last year, I asked her what she was looking for in the experience. What she described to me was a relief in an escape from bigger experiences. The future of business, she told me, could be something more intimate than what is available to us today. What do you imagine beautiful business could be? How would that be different from Well, I don't think beautiful business necessarily means it has to be a big corporation. And from all of the people so far that we've talked with, there's been several who are um, startups, uh, own their own business, started their own business, got tired of the corporate world. Um, and then there's the, the big corporations, but I think so far from 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 yesterday, I, I did not for one second feel like I was in a big corporate um, conference. Hmm. What's the difference? Um, I found it was a little bit more free thinking. I think a lot of people, apart from what we're talking about, um, artificial intelligence and how robots are going to play a role in our lives in the future, and I think that that's probably an obvious to what extent also depends on us, but I know that's out there. But the other part that really got me was the, the talking about human, the humans in the company and how to make it more human for people as a place to work. And what are we going to do for people who lose 
there or the roles no longer exist? How can we reposition these people? Um, so a much more human role than the cold corporate world that I think it's changing. I think it's changing. I think they're realizing to be able to keep people, you have to you have to make sure that they're happy. And I think a lot of people are doing startups now, and they're starting their own corporations. And younger people, you know, are going out and, and doing what they want to do, and feeling more free to start their own corporation, and not feel that okay, out of graduate school, I have to go work for a big company. I have to, you know. I think that mindset is changing. As business people talk about the future, change is the theme that they keep returning to. Too much of the dominant digital approach to business is based on the ambition of stability and predictability, attempting to target people by segmenting them into static categories. What they call digital transformation cuts too many people off from the opportunity to change. Of course, the power of these habit-based algorithms is illusory. Human identity is not a stable, singular thing. Even in the course of a single day, we shift from one aspect of ourselves into another, multiple times. There is no single truth of who we are. We contain multitudes, each one of which is true in its own way. As long as the future contains human beings, we can expect the future to be diverse as well. There are those in Silicon Valley who like to imagine that we are in the verge of entering an age of machines in which anyone who fails to upgrade into cyborg mode will become irrelevant at best. These technicians need to take a refresher course in evolutionary biology. The development of new species from old ones isn't a linear progression from primitive into advanced. Evolution branches, and weaves. Contrary to the story Jonah Sachs spun for us, intelligent species don't tend to wipe out less intelligent ones. Right now, most kinds of life on Earth are single-celled. Most species don't have a brain at all, and they get along quite well. Intelligence is just one out of many adaptive strategies, and it's only one aspect of the complexity of human cognition, which also includes dancing, singing, painting, and poetry. Those people who tell you that artificial intelligence is the only way forward for business in the future are asking you to ignore a huge range of possibilities. We ought not to allow our imaginations to become impoverished in this way. If you're hoping for a neat conclusion to round out this podcast, you're not going to get it because that's not how the future works. The uncertainty of the future ought to serve as a reminder of the ambiguity of the present moment. If you're feeling that you just don't have a solid grip on what the future will hold, well, congratulations, you have, in fact, grasped the essential nature of the future. We worry about the future because the only thing we know for sure that it will bring is our eventual decline and death. So it is that Alexander Vayner of Goodman Marketing worries that the future could bring about a decline in our emotional life. 
I think there is some romantic as well during the unknown because you maybe you feel uncomfortable because it's unknown. Nobody likes the unknown. In future, we can I think we can be more efficient and productive, but there's the danger that we lose our emotions. I think the the kind of relationships we have will be not as deep as now because of all the social networks which we have built to build relationships or to maintain relationships but the opposite is happening now we have maybe 500 600 facebook friends but only very very few real friends alexander is right to notice that past promises about the future of digital networks have not come to pass. In the past, futurists predicted that social media would bring about a flourishing of communities, but instead we find human connection is dwindling and social anxiety is on the rise. Now, I don't mean to suggest that the future only offers darkness. For every bankruptcy, many new businesses will rise. Failure is a key part of any healthy evolutionary system. If the future feels overwhelming, we should take Alexander's next thought to heart. Contemplation of the future when we abandon the effort to control it so tightly can bring a sense of release and serenity. I think maybe the unknown could be a place of quiet because um, you have to take time to sit on a chair and think about what's gonna be next and you don't do it with information you got from the internet or from any book you do it on your own relax and think about okay what's gonna be next What's the next step? So, I don't know really if it is a place of quiet, but it could be. A place of quiet. That seems a good note for this episode to end on. Now, as I've said, I can't give you any certain predictions of what the future holds, but I do believe that one week from now will bring the final full episode of this first season of This Human Business. On Wednesday next week, this podcast will look squarely in the eye of one of the most uncomfortable, yet most dynamic subjects in business culture, the issue of gender and identity in commerce. Please come back then and get ready to engage. I want to thank all the people who agreed to be interviewed for this episode, and I encourage you, the listener, to go and seek them out. Each one of them is doing remarkable work in the movement to humanize business. If you are enjoying this podcast, please 
go to iTunes or Stitcher or whatever platform you're using and give it a rating, however many stars you like. This will help the podcast to reach more people, and maybe it'll help expand a mind or two. The music you're hearing now and what you heard at the beginning of the episode is from the artist Maidan on the album For Creators. The name of the song is Underwater. Oh, and hey, there's a website where you can read all the transcripts for this podcast, this episode and the others. It's a simple website, thishumanbusiness.com. <laughs>